So this morning we're coming to Ephesians 5.18, and we spent a little bit of time there a couple of weeks ago, and so we're just going to wrap up Ephesians 5.18 together. But if you were here the last time that we were together, you'll remember that I told you of all of the contrasts that Paul has drawn for us in the book of Ephesians. And the one of all of the contrasts that he's drawn, the one that he's going to draw for us today here in verse 18 of chapter 5 may possibly be the most important contrast of all. In fact, aside from the command to repent and to be saved, the command that the Holy Spirit is going to give to us through the pen of Paul this morning in verse 18 is probably the most important of all commands of Scripture. So I really want you to listen closely, and I want you to hold on to this. You see, if you are to be able to follow all of the commands that Paul has issued to us, and all of the commands that you're going to find in the pages of Scripture, you must be able to first follow this one in Ephesians 5.18. Because if you're not able to follow this command of verse 18, you'll never realize all of the contrasts that we've read through Ephesians. Until you're able to master this command of verse 18 and make it a reality in your lives, you will never be able to conduct yourselves in all humility and gentleness. If you're unable to make this command a reality in your lives, you will never be able to live the life of love and self-sacrifice which characterizes people of our privileged position. You'll never be able to put away falseness. You'll never be able to control your emotion and your outbursts without the ability to follow the command here in verse 18. You'll never be able to have your mouth speak words of encouragement and grace at precisely the right moment to build up all of those people who hear. You'll never overcome the temptation of sexual immorality. You'll never overcome the temptation of indecency and the inclination toward coarse joking and coarse talk. In fact, it is this command that enables us to live as children of light rather than children of darkness. It is this command that empowers us to live as wise as opposed to unwise. And I want you to know that it's our obedience to this command which will supply us with the necessary resource to accomplish in your daily conduct, your daily walking around, all of the things that distinguish you as unique from people who do not know God. This is it. This is the highlight of the entire book of Ephesians. So if this is your first time, or if you're visiting today, you've come on a great day. Because this is perhaps the most important passage in the entire book of Ephesians. And last time we were together, we began looking at it in verse 18, and this is what we found. It says, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. That's the first half of this verse. And as we considered that portion of verse 18, we spent some time developing our understanding of the Christian and his use of alcohol. We developed a theology of Christianity and the Christian's use of alcohol. We spent some time trying to understand the impact that alcohol has on the human body. And we found that the use of alcohol impacts the operation of the prefrontal cortex of our brain, and it dramatically influences the thinking and the decision-making process, ultimately altering our behavior and leading us or driving the user to make decisions and to take actions that he would not otherwise. I shared a couple of examples with you last week, and you'll remember a couple of those, I'm sure. I mean, under normal circumstances, the human mind functioning at its proper capacity would never bite a police officer on the leg, would it? I mean, the human mind operating at its normal capacity would not strip off its clothes and jump onto a field filled with 40,000 fans and run around naked on a ball field. I hope. But friends... 
This is supremely important for us to understand. You see, under normal circumstances, we don't do those things. Those are decisions and they're actions of people whose minds have been influenced because they have been filled with excesses of alcohol. And as you see here in verse 18, under no circumstances, this should be very clear, under no circumstances is the believer to get drunk. It's very clear instruction. Under no circumstances is the believer ever to be drunk. In fact, Paul says that drunkenness is asotia. You'll remember that. It's asotia. It's to say that drunkenness will lead you to excessive corruption. It'll lead you to degeneracy and depravity to the point that if you continue to pursue it, your life will be completely and irretrievably ruined. So the Holy Spirit uses Paul to issue a command of prohibition here. And he says, believers, don't get drunk. You should not be getting drunk. So the bottom line is that if you are a believer, you are never to yield up the control of your mind to any substance, and that includes alcohol. You should never yield control of your mind and your faculties up to any form of substance. But I want you to understand that the reason that this portion of the verse is included here is because it is the perfect contrast. It is the absolute perfect comparison to help us properly understand the most important command that follows it. See, now that you've developed your proper understanding of drunkenness, which leads to asotia, which leads to degeneracy, now that we understand how that impacts our minds and our decision-making and ultimately our actions, now that we understand that, we're ready to move on to the second portion of the verse, and that's our passage for today, and this is what it says. But, on the other hand, be filled with the Spirit. But be filled with the Spirit. That's it. Just four simple words in the Greek. Four words, six in English. But they are so important. Because if you don't have this right, you will be completely powerless to walk around or to conduct yourselves as a pattern of life in a manner that is worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Do you understand? So I want to take our time today and I want to make sure that we really understand these four words. This is very important. And so to do that, you first need to understand that God has not required of you things that he has not also empowered you to accomplish. Do you understand that? God doesn't require of you that he doesn't equip you to accomplish. And that's what the filling of the Holy Spirit is for. That's what it is for. It's not something that's strange. It's not something that's mystical. It's not something that you should be frightened of. It's not something that's awkward. It's the power of God residing inside of you to enable you to accomplish his will and to accomplish his purpose for your life. That's what it is. And so what is God's will for your life? Do you remember we talked about this a couple of weeks ago? We said first, it's God's will that you be saved, right? We also said that it's God's will that you know the Word of God, that you be filled with the Word of God. What does 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 say? For this is the will of God. What is it? Your sanctification. So we also mentioned several other things that are the will of God for your life, but to be sanctified, friends, is to be more mature in your relationship with God. So it is God's will that you be growing in your maturity with God. And that's all sanctification is. It's the lifelong process of weeding out the behaviors in your life that don't honor God and replacing them with behaviors that do honor God. That's the process of sanctification. It's simply your spiritual growth. That's all it is. It's growing up. And it's important for you to understand that the moment that you believed... God empowered you to accomplish His will in your life. 
The moment that you believe, God gave you the power to accomplish His will in your life. You see, when you place your saving faith in Jesus Christ, God gives you new life, doesn't He? He gives you brand new life. And that new life is simply the transaction of God taking up residence inside of you through the Holy Spirit. That's what that is. And that, in a nutshell, is the reality of salvation. That's what salvation is all about. God moving into your life the moment that you believe. That's the transformation. That's what salvation is. And so to support that really quickly, I want to take you to Romans chapter 8. But just as a bit of a context as we're on our way there, I want you to understand that Paul is making here in Romans chapter 8 a distinction between those people who know God and those who don't know God. And what he's doing is he makes that distinction by identifying those people who have their minds set on either the flesh or the spirit as people who either do or don't know God, okay? So in verse 5, this is what he says. Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things according to the Spirit. Now, I want to take you to verse 6. This is what it says. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life, and it is peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, I just want to stop here for a minute, and I want to ask you, whose mind do you think Paul is talking about here? Whose mind do you think Paul is saying is set on the flesh? Who are those people whose minds are hostile toward God? Who are those people who do not submit to God? Who are those people who cannot please God? Is it people who believe? No, it's not people who believe. Is it those people who are saved? No, it is not people who are saved. It is those people who are not saved. It is those people who do not know God. But listen, friends, Paul says, that's not who you are. That's not who you are. That is not how you've learned Christ. And that's not what we've been learning in the book of Ephesians. You are distinct from those people who do not know God. You're separated. You are different from them. Now take a look at verse 9, Romans 8. This is what it says. You, however, you on the other hand are not in the flesh, but you are in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now listen closely. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. You see? So who are those who do not belong to Him? Who are those who do not belong to Christ? They are those who are not saved, aren't they? But you, on the other hand, you are not in the flesh, you are in the what? You are in the Spirit. You are saved. Why are you saved? Take a look at verse 9. Because the Spirit of God dwells in you. The Spirit of God dwells in you. In fact, if you don't have the Spirit of God dwelling in you, you don't even belong to Christ, it says. If you don't have the Spirit of God in you, it's because you are not saved. If you do not have the Spirit of God in you, it's because you're not part of the family. So if you are saved, then you do have the Spirit of God dwelling inside of you. Do you see that? So it's not a matter of whether or not you have the Spirit, is it? So God has given you the tool to empower you. It's not a matter of whether you have the Spirit or not. It is simply a matter of to what extent you are, as Paul says in Ephesians 5.18, filled with the Spirit. Do you understand? It's a matter of to what extent you are filled with the Spirit. That's why today's verse is so important. This is so important. Hang with me here. So to help you understand that concept, I'm going to take you now back to verse 18 of Ephesians 5. And as we look at it, I want you to remember that Paul is once again drawing a contrast. Are you ready? Here it is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is asotia. It is debauchery. But, on the other hand, be filled with the Spirit. Do you see this? Now, 
I want to make sure that we leave here this morning understanding this concept of being filled. Super important. This comes from the Greek verb plerao, and there are some really important things that we need to note about this word. So I want you to just indulge me for a few minutes. I want you to hang with me as we do a, a brief Greek lesson for you here, okay? So just be patient. But I need to explain a couple technical grammatical things to you so that we can understand this word. First of all, this word plerao, as we see it in this sentence, is in what we call the imperative mood. We all understand what that means, right? It means that it's a command. Paul is commanding us to be filled. That's what an imperative is, right? I'm ordering you to be filled. That's what he says. But what we need to understand is that this command is also in what we call the passive voice in Greek. This is really important. It's in the passive voice. And the reason that is so significant is because the passive voice tells us that we are not the ones taking the action to be filled. You see? We are not the ones who take the action to be filled. Rather, we are passive. That's what passive voice means. So we are commanded to be passively acted upon to be filled with the Spirit. That's what this verse says. So the best way for us to translate that is to say this, that we are commanded to be made full of the Spirit. Do you see it? It's not that you are going to fill yourself with the Spirit. It's that you are going to be passive and you are being commanded to be made full of the Spirit. That's what that command is. Now, another very important note about the usage of this verb in 18 is the fact that it is in the present tense. So this is important because it's a present imperative. Now hang with me. Don't fall asleep on me, okay? The reason that this is important is because it indicates an ongoing or a continuous action. Do you understand? Now, I want you to put all of this together. So it's not an event that happens at a particular point in time. It is not an event that is completed and is over with and is in the rearview window. It is a continuous imperative. This is what it sounds like. Be being continuously made full of the Spirit. Do you see it? Be being continuously made full of the Spirit. So now I want you to just take that and put it in your back pocket. Hold on to that for right now. And I want you to remember as we go through the rest of our instruction this morning that this verb is a present passive imperative. That's very important for you to put in your pocket now. So be being continuously filled with the Spirit. Now, now that we have all of that context, I want to take you now to help you understand the real meaning of this word, okay? And this is fantastic. I was so excited as I was preparing this. You see, this word can take a couple different senses. First of all, it can take the course of a literal sense, okay? And what I mean by that is that a ship, let's say, could be plerao, or literally filled with men, you see? So we have a ship, and it is so completely plerao with people that you couldn't put any more on. Does that make sense? It is literally filled. A bottle could be completely plerao with wine. It could be so completely stuffed full of wine that if you add one more drop, it's going to spill over the top. Do you see that? That's plerao in its literal sense. But I want you to understand that it can also be used in a figurative sense to convey a sense of emotion. And I want to help you understand that. Look at Luke 2 
And you'll remember that in Luke chapter 2 at the birth of Jesus, there are some shepherds, they're out minding their own business, doing their own thing. They're just keeping an eye on their sheep in the middle of a pitch black night. You know, there's no street lights. There's no flashlights. These guys are just minding their business. It's super quiet. They're doing their thing. When all of a sudden, this angel shows up and he is shining like the sun. And look at verse 9. It says, the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were plerao with fear. Do you see? They were filled with fear. Now, does that mean that they literally had fear dripping out of them? Of course not, because this is figurative. But at that moment, the point is that fear was the prevailing emotion. It was the thing that led them. It was the thing that drove them to their response. They were completely controlled by their fear. Their fear thrust them into the actions that they took. Maybe they were trembling. Maybe they, like the guards at Jesus' tomb, fell flat on their faces and were frightened and and shaking and trembling with their faces to the ground. But the point is that they were completely dominated. They were completely plerao by the emotion of fear. Do you get that? Does it make sense? I want to take you now to Acts chapter 9. I want to show you another example. Take a look at verse 36. And now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, that's the Aramaic, which translated to Greek means Dorcas. So if you have your choice, go with the Aramaic. People walking around calling you Dorcas. (laughs) And now listen to this. She was plerao of good works and acts of charity. Do you see that? And so what about Tabitha then? Was she so full of good works that it just kind of spilled out of her? That literally there was good works that just oozed out of her? It's the exact same verb. And what's interesting is that when you look at this context, it uses the word poieo, which Aaron mentioned last week, and it means to work or to forge. And so it should sound like this. Tabitha was full of good and wholesome works. Why? Look at Because she was constantly and continuously doing works of mercy and compassion for people. You see? So for Tabitha to be full of good works meant that she was continuously working gracious deeds. For her to be full of good works meant that she was continuously driven by the impulse to do merciful and kind things to other people. She was plerao. She was completely filled with good deeds and mercy and charity, the Bible says. So how does being filled with fear... How does being filled with good works have anything to do with Ephesians 5.18? I want to take you back there, and I want to help you understand. But before we do that, I'm going to take you to another place. I'm going to show you just one more example. And so I'm going to show you probably the most important example that you can find. And I think at this point you're going to get it. You'll remember that after Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist early in his ministry, that he went out into the wilderness, and you'll remember that he was tempted there by Satan. Do you remember that? All three of the synoptic Gospels, which are Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they record that event for us. Now, I'm going to take you to each one of those really quickly, and I'm going to show you something that's going to help this thing come alive for you, and you're going to have understanding. Now look, Luke 4.1, this is what it says. And Jesus, what? Plerao, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, and he was led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness. So here... 
Luke is using that exact same word that we saw in the case of the shepherds and in the case of Tabitha. They were plerao, they were full, and look what happens to Jesus. As he is full of the Holy Spirit, what happens? He was led by the Holy Spirit. Now, I want you to hold on to that thought, and to continue with that, I'm going to take you to Matthew's account. And I want you to take a look at Matthew chapter 3 and verse 16, because he now records the events immediately following the baptism. And this is what he says. When Jesus was baptized... Immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him, okay? So here is Jesus, who has been baptized. He comes up out of the water, and now the Holy Spirit has descended, and he has come to rest on him. So Jesus now, filled with the Holy Spirit, skipped down to verse 1 of chapter 4, and this is what it says, then Jesus was what? Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So here again, very clearly in Matthew chapter 4, we see that the Spirit is operating in the life of Christ, don't we? We see that the Spirit has just descended on him. Jesus Christ, filled with the Holy Spirit, very clearly the Spirit is active and operating in the life of Christ himself. And verse 1 says that the Spirit led him. Now, I want to take you to Mark, and this one is just fantastic. Look at verse 10. When Jesus came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. We've heard that before, haven't we? It's the exact same account verbatim as Matthew. Jesus has the Spirit descend on him. Now I want you to look what happens in verse 12. Look. The Spirit immediately did what? Drove him out into the wilderness. So Jesus, full of the Spirit, has been driven in Mark out to the wilderness. And he uses this word that is so powerful. It's the verb ekbalo, and it literally means to throw out or to thrust out. So listen, the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus Christ, active in the life of Jesus Christ's baptism. Matthew and Luke both tell us that it resulted in the Holy Spirit leading him. And Mark says even more strongly, not only did it lead him, but it compelled him. It threw him. It thrust him. It drove him out to be tempted. Do you see? Now, consider all of those examples. Filled with fear, the shepherds were driven or led by the emotion of fear to react. Filled with good works, Tabitha was led, she was driven, she was thrust forward by her filling to be continuously working acts of mercy and kindness. You see, Jesus, filled with the Spirit, was led. He was thrust forward by the Spirit. Do you understand? He was pushed forward by the Holy Spirit out into the wilderness. And that, my friends, is what it means to be playrao with the Spirit. Do you see? Listen, I told you that Paul is trying to teach us by making a contrast in verse 18. And he started by saying, don't get drunk on wine. Those people lose their sense of inhibition and they find themselves doing really stupid things. They find themselves biting police officers on the leg. They find themselves taking their clothes off and running around in stadiums. They lose their sense of inhibition and they find themselves doing things that they should not be doing. Why? Because the function of their prefrontal cortex has been affected to the point where they have a diminished ability to control their thinking process. Their sense of inhibition is dramatically limited and as a result, as the night goes on, they find that they're led, driven by alcohol to talk at a much higher volume. Have you ever noticed that? Give them a couple drinks. The next thing you know, the volume goes up. They're talking an awful lot louder because they're being driven now. They're being thrust forward by the control of this alcohol. Then the next thing you know, they become violent. The next thing you know, they become promiscuous, whatever it is. And they begin to do things that they would not otherwise do if they were not controlled by the alcohol. Do you understand? Now, they're being driven. 
They're being led. And Paul says, don't allow alcohol to lead you or to drive your decision-making processes and your actions. But on the other hand, do what? Be playrao with the Holy Spirit. Be completely filled with the Holy Spirit. Are you able to see the point here? Are you able to see what Paul is getting at in verse 18? Do you see those people over there who do not know God? Do you see those people who allow alcohol to lead their decision-making? Do you see those people who are thrust forward to vile and ungodly conduct, living as unwise people who cannot control their sexual passions, living as unwise people who speak filthiness, who lie to one another, who steal from one another, and who serve only themselves because they have yielded up the control of their minds and their bodies to the control of wine? Do you see those people over there? Don't you ever live like that. That's what Paul's saying. On the other hand, let your conduct, friends, listen closely. On the other hand, let your conduct, let your life be led or driven by the Holy Spirit that you may live as wise and not as unwise, that you may have self-control, that you may not struggle with containing yourself, but that you would have self-control, that you may have love, that you may serve sacrificially. Do you see the point? What Paul is saying is in the exact same way that unwise people are controlled by alcohol, in the exact same way that unwise people are controlled by their own passions, you as believers must be controlled. You must be led by the Holy Spirit. That's the point of verse 18. But it's important for us to remember that this is what? A present passive imperative. Remember? Now take that back out of your pocket. And we're going to talk about that for a minute. You are to be continuously being made to be filled with the Spirit. You see? We are to be constantly, you are to be continuously led and driven by the Holy Spirit. Paul says in the exact same way that wine controls you, allow the Holy Spirit to control you. As you learn to yield control to Him, you're going to find yourselves doing things that you would not under other circumstances do. You follow me? That's what's going to happen. Friends, it is so important for us to understand that you can never fill the righteous requirements of Scripture. You can't do it on your own power. You can't. You will never fill the righteous requirements of Scripture through self-discipline and restraint. You will never fill the righteous requirements of Scripture simply by concentrating as hard as you possibly can. You cannot do it. You can only do it as you are led, as you are thrust forward, as you are driven by the Holy Spirit. That is the only way, friends. You can never love. You can never give yourself up sacrificially, giving everything that you desire away so that you can satisfy the desires of someone else if you are not led by the Holy Spirit. You can't do that. You will never ever consistently be able to speak a timely word filled with grace to people who need to hear it unless you are led by the Holy Spirit. You will never put away falseness unless the Holy Spirit drives you forward in truth. A time where you feel the impulse to lash out, a time where you feel compelled to angry outburst, you will never be able to respond in all lowliness, in all humility, and all gentleness at that time unless you are thrust forward by the Holy Spirit, unless He pushes you. Do you understand? See, if the Holy Spirit does not lead you, if He does not thrust you into those reactions, you'll never be able to do them because your human nature won't allow you to do that. It's contrary to human nature. And the only way that you could ever be able to continually do those things is if you are continually led and thrust forward by the power of the Holy Spirit. Only then will He drive you to do the things that are typically out of character for you. 
Only then will he take the selfish man and make him a wife-loving husband. That sounds great, doesn't it? Wives? (laughs) Where do we sign up? And so I want to help you understand where you sign up. I want to show you how to do this. Because it's really nice for me to stand up here and say that you need to be led by the Holy Spirit. But if I don't give you the tools to do that, it's completely worthless, isn't it? And so that's what I'm going to do this morning. You say, Scott, I want to be led and I want to be thrust forward by the Holy Spirit, but I have no idea what that means. I have no idea what that looks like. And so I'm going to give you a few steps. First, if you want to be led or if you want to be thrust forward by the Holy Spirit, the very first thing that you need to do is be saved. Understand? Because Romans 8, 9 says that if you are not saved, you don't have the Spirit. If you are saved, the Holy Spirit lives in you. And at that point, He can guide you. So if you are not saved, the Holy Spirit does not live in you and you have no capacity, you have no resource to rely on to thrust you forward that is godly. You only have the resources of your human nature and that will thrust you into things that you don't want to do. So if you want to be led by the Holy Spirit, the very first thing that you need to do is you need to say to God in your own words, look, I recognize that I'm a sinner and that I don't measure up to your standard. That's where you have to start. You'll need to believe in your heart that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. You'll need to believe in your heart that He lived a perfect life, that He died and that He was raised after three days. You need to believe in your heart that through your faith in Jesus Christ that God will credit to you His righteousness. That's what you have to believe. And if you do that, I want you to know that you will belong to Christ and the Holy Spirit at that point will take up residence inside of you and at that point you have the resource to be thrust forward under the power of the Holy Spirit. But friends, listen to me. If you do not do that, you need to know that you are not saved and that you are bound for an eternity in the torment of hell away from the presence of God. It's just the truth. Secondly, as we look at verses 19-21 through in the coming weeks, And really moving forward until we reach the end of the book of Ephesians, we're going to look at the evidences of the filling of the Holy Spirit. We're going to see those. You see, in the book of Colossians, in many ways, it parallels the instruction of Paul's instruction to the Ephesians. And you'll remember that in Ephesians 5, that we are to be continuously filled or driven by the Holy Spirit. And then as you're going to see in the coming weeks, that he will go on to give us the evidence that we are led or thrust forward by the Holy Spirit. If you look at Colossians chapter 3, Paul lists the exact same evidence that you're going to see in the book of Ephesians going forward from today. And Paul says that it is produced by this. Take a look at Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ do what? dwell in you richly. Do you see? So being led by the Spirit then produces the same fruit, the same results as letting the Word of God dwell in you richly. Do you understand why that's important? Remember who it was that inspired Scripture. Who was it? The Holy Spirit inspired all Scripture according to 2 Peter 1.21. So it is reasonable for us as believers to expect that if we want to be led by the Holy Spirit, we must fill our hearts, we must fill our minds with the words that the Holy Spirit inspired. Does that make sense? If you want to be led, if you want to be thrust forward by the Holy Spirit, you don't need to go running off to some seminar somewhere and listen to the craziness of some crackpot. What you need to do is get your Bible out and get into the Word of God and begin to fill your mind with the Word of God and allow the Holy Spirit to enact change in your lives. Just like wine, the more you find yourselves filling yourselves with the Word of God, the more you'll find yourselves allowing it to take control of your decision-making process. Did you understand? Fill your mind with the Word of God and it's going to take control of your decision-making processes. It's going to take control of your actions. You want to be led by the Spirit? Then fill your mind with the Word of God, friends. Anytime somebody comes to me 
It tells me that they're struggling with a particular sin or a particular action that they feel doesn't please God. I always ask them, how are you doing in the Word of God? How are you, how's your devotional life look? And can I tell you that the answer is almost always the same? It's not very good, Scott. I don't get a lot of time in the Word of God. I'm just so busy. Listen to me. If you want to be led, if you want to be thrust forward by the Holy Spirit, you need to fill your mind with His Word. You see, it's there that you're able to find the path to your sanctification. It's there that you're able to find the path to your spiritual growth. Thirdly, after you have been saved and you have been filled with the Holy Spirit and you have begun to fill your mind with the Word of God, you know what you need to do? You need to do what it says. What does James 1.22 say? It tells us that you are not only to be hearers of the Word, but that we are to be people who take action on what we have learned. Listen, friends, theory is absolutely useless unless it is followed by some form of practice. Right? Theory is absolutely worthless unless practice follows the theory because it can't affect change without practice. So listen, you can come here every week, week in and week out, and you can listen to the Word of God as we explain it to you, and you can listen to the Word of God as it says, don't get drunk, don't lie, don't seal, don't act sexually immoral, but listen to me, if you turn around and you walk right out the door and you do those things anyway, James says you're a fool. He says it's like looking at yourself in a mirror and forgetting what you look like. Why would you go and hear that instruction only to ignore it and walk away and not change anything? Why would you fill your mind with the Word of God to never take action on it? Does it make sense to you? It's theory without practice. It's worthless. If you're going to fill your mind with the Word of God, you have to take action on it. You have to do something about it. You have to move on it. You have to be driven to move on it. And finally, pray. 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul says that we're to pray how often? All the time. You should be praying all the time. Friends, listen to me. At every point in your life, at every decision you make, if you can stop and you can pause for a moment to ask God to help you to do the things that is consistent with His will, and if you can ask Him to help you do the things in your life that is consistent with His purpose as it's outlined in the pages of Scripture, I want you to know He's going to do that. Walk carefully. Isn't that what Paul says? Watch where you're going. Don't put your foot down without seeing where it's going to land. Walk circumspectly, the Bible says. Before you take your next step, ask the Holy Spirit to confirm in your heart that it's the right one. Don't just jump in. Confirm with the Holy Spirit that you're taking the right step. And listen, if it is not consistent with the instruction of Scripture, don't put your foot there. You see? Follow those four simple steps, and you'll find that you're going to begin to do things that you would not normally, under your own power, be able to do. You're going to find yourself doing things that you never did before. You're going to find yourselves serving your wives and your husbands and your children in ways you never thought possible. You're going to find yourself being an encouragement to your neighbor. You're going to find yourself reaching out to your community in a way that you would say, that is not me. That's not something that I normally do. You'll find yourself honoring God. You'll find yourself growing in your spiritual life. You'll find yourself, just like Christ, being led and being thrust forward, pushed forward, thrown out by the Spirit of God into doing the things that are right. And you know what you're going to find there? You're going to find blessing. I'd like to close this morning by reading Psalm 119 to you, just verses 1-8. through 8. And I'm going to read it from a, message, from a translation I don't usually use. This is the message, and I just want you to listen to this as I read it to you. You are blessed... When you stay on course, walking steadily on the road revealed by God, you are blessed when you follow His directions, doing your best to find Him. That's right. You don't go off on your own. 
You walk straight along the road that He set. You, God, prescribed the right way to live, and now You expect us to live it. Oh, that my steps might be steady, keeping to the course You set. Then, I'd never have any regrets in comparing my life with Your counsel. Thank You for speaking straight from Your heart. I learned the pattern of Your righteous ways. I'm going to do what You tell me. Father, I thank You for Your goodness. I thank You for Your mercy. I thank You for Your Holy Spirit that fills us all at the very moment that we believe to empower us to move forward, thrust forward, being led into doing the things that honor and please You. And God, if there's one thing that I would pray for Root River Church, it would be that we'd be a place that is filled with Your Holy Spirit, completely filled with Your Holy Spirit, so that every time we take a step, every time we put our foot down, we can be sure that we're taking the steps that are guided by You. We can be sure that we stay on the path that You've directed for us. Lord, I pray that You would fill our mouths with thanksgiving, with praise for You. That the cry of our heart would be to exalt You and to lift You up. That is, after all, why You created us, that we could bring glory to Your name, Isaiah tells us. And so, Lord, I pray that everything that we do would bring glory and honor to You, that we would weed out the things in our lives that don't honor You, and that we would replace those with God-honoring behaviors. That we would replace those things with behaviors that bring glory to Your name and make us distinct from the people of the world who don't know You. Because it's at that point that we can shed the light of Christ on them and show them blessing and the path to happiness.